And thank God my therapist was lovely and actually asked me really important questions about my life. Like, what was my definition of success? Were the things that I was doing on a daily basis leading me to a life experience that I want to have? And if I was honest with myself, it wasn't. I was chasing this inevitable dollar figure of whatever that money is and whatever that prestige and status that comes with that sort of position. It took a bit of time for me to sort of reevaluate that, hey, what's the point of chasing something that isn't going to bring you the outcome of what that right definition is and actually put my ego aside and what I think is a definition of success or a trajectory of success that I've been taught and actually redefine that for myself. Change careers, break into new industries, transition into new roles, reinvent yourself and make the dent you want. This is the Second Breaks podcast. And now, here's your host and fellow Second Breaker, Lou Blazer. Hello, my friend. Thank you so much for joining me today. This is episode 36 of the Second Breaks podcast, and it is Monday. It's a rainy Monday here in Clearwater, Florida, January 29th, 2018, as I record this episode. So um, I want to tell you about this habit of mine. You probably you probably have this habit too. But um, on Sundays, I sit down and I plan the week ahead, right? So this is something that I've been doing for decades. And it helped me, it really helped me tremendously, especially during those years when I was traveling extensively for work. And I needed to have a proper sit down just to figure out kind of what's happening from week to week. And And even, you know, just simply figuring out where I was going to be that week. So it was something that I looked forward to doing. And and to some degree, it was also a necessary habit or a necessary routine for me to be doing. The funny thing is that it sort of fell by the wayside when I quit my corporate life and when I started a business. I'm thinking that on hindsight, I think it's because... The days in the week blended into each other when I left my corporate life. And I think in the beginning, I was so uh, happy to be, quote unquote, free of the uh, of the schedule <laughs> of my calendar so that I purposely, uh, I think I purposely set about to blend the days in the week so that I, I wasn't thinking of a Monday, I wasn't thinking of a Friday, I wasn't thinking of a weekend. It was all sort of just one big blob of a week. (laughs) And initially, it was my idea of being free of a calendar, being free of a schedule. Um, And so for a while, I didn't have an end of the week or a beginning of the week routine. I think that's, that's definitely one reason why I stopped doing this Sunday, you know, habit or routine. And the other reason I think is that I found myself in this space where my goals list for second breaks was as long as my arm and a half. (laughs) And my to-do list was pages and pages long. And so I found myself whenever I sat down to kind of quote unquote do my Sunday planning, it ended up to be just simply a cleanup of my to-do list of like rewriting the to-do list and cleaning it up basically instead of a strategic and intentional process of deciding, you know, kind of where I need to focus on and what I was committing to do the following week, that kind of stuff. So it's it ended up to be more of like a cleanup, right? And so I stopped doing it. Now Sometime last year, I realized um, I've fallen into some kind of a rut and I felt the need to resurrect basically my old routine and get some structure back and focus and intention to my week. Uh, I also felt like I needed to mark the weeks. (laughs) Funnily enough, I needed something to say, this week is ending or this is the start of a new week. So, um... I know this probably sounds so weird for you, right? So anyway, I, uh, I've gone back to doing Sunday planning now. Uh, that was the point that I was trying to make. And I have to say, I feel so much more organized and much more intentional about where I want to focus for the week. Uh, I use a combination of paper and a digital process. Uh, for my weekly plan, I use Danielle Laporte's Desire Mapping uh, or Desire Map Planner, I should say. It comes either in a daily or a weekly format, and I use the weekly version. Um, And then for my daily to-dos, I use Trello, which is an online tool that you can access 
free. There's a paid version too, I think, but I am perfectly happy with just, you know, the free version. Basically, Trello replaced my paper to-do list. Uh, and when I have a big project, so for example, like when I'm trying to, when I'm working on revising the website, for example, I also use Trello as a project management tool. So I'll put a link to, you know, these, you know, the planner and the Trello on the show notes so you can kind of check it out yourself as well. So that's basically what I do every Sunday now. I sit down, I remind myself of my one major goal for the year, uh, and then my quarterly target and my projects. Then um, in addition to the weekly and the daily things that must be done, uh, I also make sure that I'm creating space and allocating time for the strategic action items, basically those that relate directly to my quarterly target and my projects and my annual goal. Um, you know, I didn't even really intend to talk about my Sunday routine. <laughs> the reason, the reason I mentioned Sunday planning at all was because I realized when I sat down this weekend that it was already the last weekend of January. Can you believe it? By the end of this week, we will be in February already. And I don't know about you, but this month flew by, you know, just like that for me. I feel like, you know, I just greeted the new year last week and now it's the month's ending. Um, and it, uh, it made me think how important it really is to have our goals and our intentions front and center because the days fly by so fast nowadays. We have so many distractions. We have so many things, shiny objects to, uh, occupy our time and the, the busier we get, the more things there are to do, the more things there are vying for attention. I think the more important is to pause every now and again to remind ourselves about what it is that we're trying to do and, and accomplish and then be deliberate about where to put our time and our attention. So that's kind of my first month's end reminder to you. What are you looking to accomplish this year? What's your one major goal for 2018? And then ask yourself if you are allocating some of your energy and your attention to working that goal. And as you're doing that, know that I'm doing it with you, right? I'm doing this exact same thing. So speaking of goals and intentions, if your goal happens to be to one day be able to leave your corporate job and run your own business, I think you will definitely love today's episode. I have Lydia Lee today, founder of Screw the Cubicle, which I think is pretty self-explanatory in terms of what it's all about. Lydia herself left the cubicle world and started her own business a few years ago. And in today's episode, she shares what that journey uh, was all about or how it's been for her. All the learnings and all the lessons learned and all the experiences and what helped during the transition and all that kinds of good stuff. But in addition to that, Lydia also doles out a ton of very helpful, very practical suggestions for anybody who's thinking of making a leap into entrepreneurship or business ownership based on her own experiences as well as the insights that she gained from coaching women uh, make this transition over the years. So with that, let me transition to my chat with Lydia and I'll catch up with you at the end. Hello Lydia, welcome to Second Breaks. Thank you so much for joining me. Lou, I'm excited for our conversation today. <laughs> you are the first person that I'm uh, talking to from that side of the world to so tell everybody where you are. <laughs> well, I'm in Bali, Indonesia. You'll probably hear it soon enough with the cockadoodle goos and, you know, the, the roosters that sort of are in the background and people sort of go, yeah, you're not you're not in North America. Uh, yeah. So Bali's been my home for the last uh, four and a half, almost five years now. I love the name of your website, Scrudo Cubicle. I would love very much to talk to you about that in a in a bit. But I was wondering, maybe we could start a little bit with your career backstory. If you don't mind, kind of share with us kind of how you got to where you are now. What were you doing before you were a coach? And uh, why did you leave whatever that was that you were doing before? If you looked at my resume, Lou, it looks like it's like for five people. Like literally, I was one of those like 
you know, polymath, like multi-passionate people that could never stay at one job for more than two years because I, I got bored easily. But I was someone that loves exploring different industries. So I've been in the real estate industry. I've been in hospitality. I've been in marketing. I've been in publishing, uh, you know, all sorts of things like it's really for five people. But the most recent, I guess, corporate job that I would have had, let's say, about almost six years ago now, uh, that was an international education. So my job was a, a business development director. So my job was to promote education in Canada. Um, I had quite a sexy on paper job where it allowed me to travel six months out of the year, you know, to really beautiful places like Switzerland and France and Italy. Uh, and it sounds great on paper, but in reality, it was a lot of spending time alone in hotel rooms, missing my friends and family and not really, you know, you, if you're jet lagged constantly half the year, uh, it can absolutely sort of seep into, you know, the health of your livelihood, things like that. Uh, however, I would have to say that I'm very grateful for that job for giving me that travel bug. You know, it allowed me to see the world, right, without me paying for it, for sure. Uh, but it also gave me that instinct that, wow, when I travel, when I'm in a different country, when I'm meeting new people in different cultures, I feel alive, you know. And that was the initial instinct of, like, how can I do more of that without having to do a bunch of conferences in the daytime and have enough time to actually travel? Uh, so, yeah, so that was my old job. And, and um I was there for about three years before I decided to to quit. So how my sort of moment happened, and I'm sure because you talk to a lot of people in these interviews, is there always has to be like a moment of breakdown, right? Like we don't seem to change or make big changes in our lives until we have some sort of reality check, like like a wrench just thrown into our world, you know, like where it's like, holy crap, something is not right here. So I had my moment, and this was um, sort of during a business trip in Russia, in Moscow, um, and I mean, there was a whole combination of why this circumstance would have happened. I mean, it was like winter is not very fun in Russia to begin with, you know, like I was like knee deep in snow. Um, it was dark, like night to day, you know, or day to night, sorry, you know, with the weather. And then I had been on the road for probably about like over a month at that time. Um, and I was in this really shitty hotel room that was just like, oh, like, how is my life here in Russia right now? But um, that moment, you know, I had I remember my, my boyfriend at the time, I remember calling him from the hotel room and saying, I don't know what's come over me, but I cannot go to my nine appointments that I have today because that's what they do. Right. When you get on a business trip, they just line up all the appointments squeeze all of it out of you. And I'm like, I just don't want to get out this door and do this routine again of selling this thing that I no longer believe in, you know? And he's like, what's wrong with you? You're always like super gung ho. I was like, I just, I, I'm feeling really tired and just like, I don't want to do this anymore. And I think part of that was also a combination of not taking a holiday. So I used to be that like, you know, I'm a, I'm a child of immigrant parents from Malaysia. You know, they've taught me like every penny needs to be saved. Anytime you get money, uh, you need to pay down your debt. So I never took a holiday. I always took a payout. And so it was that combination of like not taking a break, being overworked. I was working like 60 to 70 hours a week, especially when I was on the road in all day conferences. And I just didn't feel at all joyful in my life. I had all this money. It was, I was making the most money uh, uh, I've ever made in my career um, and not having time or energy to spend it. You know, it was like this sort of getting on this hamster wheel, not knowing when to get off and sort of going, how, how, why am I not feeling better? I have all this money and I, I just bought a house and I just bought this car. And like, why am I not feeling any more joyful? You know, and that actually became quite a depressing moment for me. You know, I don't know if other people listening to this feels that way, you know, where you sort of like, you work so hard to climb the corporate ladder, you get up there and the view isn't what you're expecting, you know, and the sense of disappointment, right? It's like, I have done everything right. You know, like I did those internships, I climbed that ladder, I did all the things, and now I don't feel any better. If anything, I feel a little bit worse about my life that I don't feel this jolt of happiness and feeling kind of ungrateful as well that, you know, at that time, a lot of my friends were getting laid off, like the economic crisis that sort of hit Vancouver as well, where people were getting laid off. And, you know, like, like that wasn't a time to quit your job, basically. And I was in this very uh, fortunate position where I was being paid a lot of money uh, and complaining about my job. You know, like it was the sense of like, I can't tell anyone this secret because everyone's out of a job. Uh, so, you know, there's that shame and guilt that comes with uh, that as well. Um, but I think also that depressive moment was sort of like, I thought I did everything right. I ticked all the boxes. I, I, you know, crossed all the T's and yet I did not make the right decision for me. So it was a sense of disappointment in myself. However, you know, in every breakdown, there's a breakthrough, 
right? If you see it that way. So of course, what do you do when you have a breakdown? You get a therapist, right? Uh, and that's sort of what I did, right? Like first time, my first time like working with a therapist and thank God my therapist was lovely and didn't sort of try to shove a bunch of pills down my throat uh, and actually asked me really important questions about my life. Like what was my definition of success? Uh, were the life, you know, the things that I was doing on a daily basis leading me to a life experience that I want to have? And if mm-hmm. I was honest with myself, it wasn't. I was chasing this inevitable dollar figure of whatever that money is and whatever that prestige and status that comes with that sort of position. Um, there was a low hanging carrot, uh, of temptation of being made partner to this company. And, uh, that was a big milestone. No one in my family has ever done something like that. And so to give it all up felt really scary, you know, but, um, it took a bit of time for me to sort of reevaluate that, Hey, what's the point of chasing something that isn't going to bring you the outcome of what that right definition is and actually put my ego aside and what I think is a definition of success or a trajectory of success that I've been taught and actually redefine that for myself. So it was a, it was a very existential moment for me for sure. And it wasn't just a moment. It was like months of working on that, uh, that instigated my escape. Um, where I started, uh, where I sort of started after that is that I needed to do something quickly to get out. So I, I had nine. So basically, it took me about nine to ten months to quit my job. Part of that was going through therapy, and also part of that working with a business coach and knowing nothing about business, being very green in like, how do I promote myself? Like I've never done anything like that before. So hiring both was a good, a good thing, but it took me about nine months to build uh, my first business, which was not screw the cubicle. Actually. Uh, It was a boutique agency still in the same industry of international education, where I was sending uh, Canadian teachers to teach English abroad. And I was also sending foreign children from China and Taiwan and Thailand over to Canada for exchange programs. And that was sort of a transition business. It was an easy business for me to start because I had the contacts. I knew the industry. I knew what to do there. So that felt like the easiest thing to do. Uh, And I also negotiated a consultant position with my current uh, or that current company I was leaving so that I wasn't quitting completely. I was sort of shifting roles, which I didn't think I could do, but really glad I gave it a chance because it bought me another six months of income, right? That allowed me to feel safe enough to quit, do the consulting gig while working on my my business as well. And Screw the Cubicle really came as an accident, to be honest, Lou. I don't really have an exciting story about Screw the Cubicle. Um, Screw the Cubicle was done for me, to be honest. It was my blog to document my own identity crisis that I was experiencing going through this corporate transition. So you started it after you quit or while you were still at the job? After I quit already and started my first business and obviously went through the motions of that first year of entrepreneurship where everything is like a blur and, you know, everything you're doing doesn't work. And, you know, like, did I make the right decision? Like, you know, people thought I was probably having a midlife crisis a bit too early, uh, you know, all those sorts of things. So I was using the blog as a way of almost like a therapeutic way for me to just write what was happening. And then my friends and family could read it and sort of understand what was happening in my world. Right. Um, and it was a diary really for me. (laughs) Um, and then it wasn't until really somebody, messaged me from the website and said, I love your blog. I've been reading it for a little while. I'm exactly where you're at. Do you do coaching for professionals to help them get out of the, out of the, out of the corporate job? And I was like, what's coaching? Uh, you know, so then I had to look into that, you know, and I always thought, do I want to be a therapist? I don't think I want to be a therapist. What's a coach, you know? And so I had to sort of look at that. And if that was something I didn't want to do, because I've never been at that time trained to do it, had any education around it, or even to be honest, exposure to it, uh, other than my own business coach, really. Uh, but I needed, I wanted to explore that because I thought, well, I'm giving away all this information for free. I talked to people who would talk to me at a coffee shop about these topics all the time. And someone's actually inquiring about my services. I should you've probably use this as a bit of an instinct of, is this something I can explore? So um, I then uh, went into, um, uh, for the next three months of exploring this idea, I took on about eight guinea pig clients that paid me nothing. Uh, but I was using them as a case study to, to first of all, verify if I indeed like to be a coach, if I was going to be irritated, other people's problems or not. Well, there's certain people I could help and certain people I can't help. You know, where did I stand within it all? And what could I offer that is a value and made it very clear about that was the exchange, right? It was sort of like an experiment. I'm going to help you as much as I can. I'm going to put my whole heart into helping you, but I don't know what's actually going to happen at the outcome, but come on this journey with me. It's complimentary, but all I ask for is that we exchange feedback. And, and, and if you like the experience, offer me a testimonial at the end of it all. So that was the sort of what kickstarted through the cubicle 
being something. And then within six months of that, I ended up closing down my agency, my initial business and, and sort of um, investing my time into Screw the Cubicle full time. That's, you know, five years ago. So, so what, were you still in Canada then? I started in Canada. I started both um, uh, enti- uh, ventures in Canada, in Vancouver, and then realized that, I mean, you know, as a first time entrepreneur, like every penny counts at that time. Right. Um, and I think Vancouver is a very expensive city. I don't know about Florida, but uh, Vancouver is like, very expensive. So for an entrepreneur living, you know, downtown and, you know, you know sort of like still, it was like penny to penny, you know, it was, it wasn't a comfortable financial position for me. And I didn't want to continue to dip into my savings all the time when, when there was a low month, which happens. Right. Um, and then I reread the four hour work week. I reread it cause I read it three times prior when I was still in it and I didn't get it. I was sort of like, I get it like in, in like that world of coders and programmers and digital techie guys. I never considered myself in that tribe, you see. So I was like, I'm not like techie. I, I cannot do a drop shipping company. I'm, I'm very service-based and like, I didn't know anyone service-based that was sort of like a consultant or, or a coach or whatever that sort of did this location independently. Right. So, um, I sort of ended up sort of reading it, but not really digesting it and applying it to my life because I had these limiting beliefs that it's only reserved, you know, the location independent life was reserved for like web designers and coders and those guys could sort of do it from anywhere. I couldn't imagine having clients like I've been seeing clients physically in Vancouver. So the idea of not seeing them physically and they still would be happy with me was sort of a bit. How do you do this? <laughs> I do that. You know, I, I didn't because I didn't have anyone showing me that that was possible. You see, so the reason why I left Vancouver to come to Southeast Asia to begin with was to experiment with this, in, you know, th- this instinct that could I do that? Would people get mad at me? Would they drop me? As a, as a, as you know, my clients dropped me. And so I, I sort of told everyone what was, what was happening and that I set up the systems to ensure that people were still taken care of and they could still um, have access to me. And, and sort of ventured into a six month experiment. Like, you know, let's just do it for six months and see what happens. I can always come back. And then obviously six months has now turned to five years. So, so just, uh, going back a little bit to maybe the first year or just as you were making that decision to uh, leave the corporate career, uh, what were, if you remember, if you still remember, kind of what were your biggest challenges or um, things that kind of held you back, if anything? Number one was money. You know, I had a, a horrible money mindset from the, the upbringing that I have, you know, uh, and it's not, not to, you know, my blame my parents or anything. I mean, they did so much for me to get to Canada to offer me an education. But of course, that comes with, you know, um, the teaching that they passed on to me, which was everything that you want is really hard to get, you know, because their life took so long to develop in Canada, to start from scratch again, you know, and that was a very humbling experience for my family. Uh, and so there was a definition of like, to be able to feel successful, it sort of has to feel like you have to sweat blood and tears to get there. I don't know if it's an Asian way as well. Like, you know, I tend to talk about this story. I can totally relate. You know, there's this sort of like tough love, you know, like go and be somebody and honor the decisions we've made for you sort of thing. So there's pressure that comes with the Asian mentality of, you know, honor. Uh, and then it's like, you need to do all the things that everybody is doing so that you can get to um, the place that you need to get to, which is buy a house and have a family and, you know, be a mother and all the things that you're supposed to do. Right. And I never felt that that was my definition. As much as I want a family still, it's not like I, I don't want a family. It's just, I don't want to do it that way. You know, I didn't want to do it that way. Um, and so that was sort of the number one fear security. First of all, it's like, leaving something that felt sure, right? Or, you know, because I was being paid on time and, you know, everything felt. And then of course it's about the money financially. And I think this is sort of most people's fears is that, am I ever going to make the same amount of money I am currently making that I've worked so hard to get, you know, in my Mm -hmm. career. And so what I had to really like to be able to, um, move past that obstacle of being afraid of money in order to create something for myself. Well, was first of all, I had to get real, real with my money. So what that meant was that I was someone, even though I was making $120,000 a year, which felt like a big paycheck, I didn't actually really see what I was taking in and going out. And, you know, I was very mindful of what I was doing. And to be honest, even at 120 grand, I never really thought I saved that much more money than when I made 60 grand year. Mm. It, it sort of didn't feel that different to me. You know? If anything, I worked more, you know, to get to 120 grand, you know? And so when I, I sat down, this was really hard for me. So I used to be the girl that would go pay my bills online and cover the total to pay my bills. Cause I didn't want to know how much was left over. Like that was how avoidant I was of 
being financially accountable. Okay. Um, so, you know, I was like, this is what's trumping me. This whole not wanting to know about my money and not wanting to take control of it because I'm afraid of it is costing me this bravery to pursue something. Cause I'm not sure about how much do I need? How much can I save? But I didn't know the numbers, right? So I was sort of like thinking, no, 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 I can't leave my corporate job unless I made 120 grand in my business. You know, that was sort of the formula that I However, when I got real with it, which meant that I actually said, okay, I got paid 120 grand, but then ta- I don't know what taxes are in Florida, but in Vancouver, they're high. So like at that income bracket, you're being taxed about 40% of your income. So I was not making 120 grand. I was making 60% of that. Okay. And then when I actually divided that 60% by the hours I was actually working every week, I found out that I was making less than my assistant. That was the reality check, right? Of the numbers. I'm like, wow, here I am chasing 120 grand. But in reality, I'm only making this amount an hour because of the amount of hustle I have to do to get to this position. And I would rather be my assistant, less pressure, you know, that, you, you know, when you go home, you don't take work home. And it's like, wow, I've really looked, I had to really reframe this whole look at, I only need to make 120 grand. And that's my permission slip to quit my job. You know, that, that comparison to, I can't leave something that felt this big. Mm-hmm. The other part of being financially, um, you know, accountable to yourself is that I had to then see what I was spending money on. So I had to go back into, you know, like my year of spending and sort of go, what are the sort of big spending pieces of my life every single month? And a lot of it was things like eating out, shopping to probably numb the pain in some way, you know, spending things on like frivolous things, like a pair of shoes that I never wore again. You know, it was sort of like retail therapy, if you will, you know? And so I had to readjust the way that I spent my money and also readjust what was important in my life. So if this new thing of reinventing my life and going after a different career path and a different lifestyle was my goal and and priority, I had to say no to going out all the time, right? I had to say no to all these big trips to Whistler and spending, you know, thousands of dollars every weekend we go down there, you know? And so it was like really managing my own expectations of spending, but also knowing that it's an exchange. I'm not sacrificing anything I don't want. I'm exchanging my experience of spending all this money with this experience of building something a bit more sustainable for myself. So after I sort of did all that, I got a little bit more comfortable with my money and actually figured out that for me to feel safe to quit, I actually only really needed to make about $3,000 a month. Mm-hmm. And that was it versus $120,000 a year. That felt like way too big. And so that felt daunting, right? But three grand, like, okay, that's, that's very manageable. That I can divide that by the number of, you know, packages I sell or clients that I take on. Like it was so much more tangible to reach $3,000 than I need to make 120 grand. And that's the only way I can quit. So the, the numbers are super important. And I think money is the number one fear, but I think we have to understand what we mean by, by being afraid of money because we can we, we need to say it and then we need to go, why am I afraid of my money? What is unclear for me? What do I need to discover or figure out in order to be more clear about feeling good about my money and knowing that I can use it to fund my escape plan, right? So, you know, my whole notion about that is that behind every fear, there's actually an opportunity to understand that there's just a missing gap of information, a missing gap of uh, uh, acknowledgement or, or, or understanding about something. And that's just an instigator. The fear is just an instigator to go, you're just missing a bit of facts here. You're missing a couple of things that you have to research, maybe talk to people about. It doesn't mean you're scared the end. All it means is just, oh, wow, I don't know something. And that's why it feels unclear. What do I have? If I was like a private investigator, what do I really think I need to find out? in order to feel better about this. And I think that's a much more healthier way to look at fear, using fear as an opportunity rather than uh, is the end of the story, you know? Thank you for that. I love that reframing of fear as an instigator to sort of explore a little bit more and understand what's deeper. So I like that. So you mentioned something about, you know, I think you were making this decision or you got into this uh, phase in your life during the time when the whole world was facing some kind of a recession and uh, lots of people were losing their jobs. And people are probably looking at you and thinking, how could you walk away from something solid? And meanwhile, I've been trying to look for a job for the last six months and I can't find one, right? Sure. And so did you um, did you experience having a hard time explaining to your friends, your family, why you're doing what you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, but I also have to say that a lot of the um, reservations that I felt around that time was also all in my head. You know, I had assumed that people would judge me. I would assume mm. my mother would be... Um, 
extremely not proud of me. Uh, I assume that people would say you are uh, you are so ungrateful for doing these things. And not to say that that didn't happen in some conversations, but it wasn't all the conversations I was having. So that was the first thing is that I needed to get out of my own head and actually started to look at the facts, right? What were When I do share this with people, what were the true reactions from people? And even when people were sort of naysayers, and you'll have some of that, like my mother, the way she shows love, okay, like this is what I had to uh, really discover uh, actually through my transition is actually really helped me grow my relationship with my mother because um, her way of giving love is to warn me about things that is happening. You know what I mean? It's like, that's the like tiger mom way of being like, hello, you're going to Bali? Excellent. But there's all these rapes and murders and stuff happening here. It's like, oh, really? That's what you're going to tell me? So um, I used to get really angry at her to sort of like, like sort of, uh, why are you raining on my parade? I used to say that to her. She'd go, what are you talking about? You know, I, I, oh, I love you. That's why I'm warning you. And I was like, oh my uh. God. Then it dawned on me that's like the whole time she's actually showing love. I just haven't received it that way. And we're just <laughs> sort of two languages of love. Um, but she used to do that. She's like, but what about this? And what about all the pension plan things and all about investments that you've done? Like what's going to happen there? And, and it gave me anxiety, to be honest, because I too didn't know the, the answers to that, you know? So I sort of went, I don't know about that. Oh my God. Oh my God. I didn't think about this. So it did give me that anxiety because I felt it anyway myself. What I had to learn to do was to ask and make requests of how she can support me. So instead of being like, stop talking about that and stop making me worry, I would have to say something like, mom, I know those are the things that I'm, I can't, I should be concerned about and think about it. But right now, what would be helpful to me is that if you would just support me in a way that actually, um, you know, it's more positive, right? So I know all these things I have to do, but maybe we could talk more about the opportunity that I'm going into, how exciting that is, rather than mm. what's going to hold me back, right? So I had to talk to her and make requests, and she actually would, you know, do that because she just didn't know what I needed, you know? And so I think what happens in change, we expect people to just support us, like, tell us what we need, read my mind, tell me I'm awesome, tell me I made the right decision, but actually you have to make that request and go, here's how you can support me. Um, right. For people who are truly, truly dream, you know, like like people that shit on dreams, like there are people like that that sort of go, what the fuck are you doing? And, you know, all these sorts of things that because, you know, they believe it's actually the wrong decision. And that's they they feel the need to tell you there are people like that. And I had a one of two people that one or two people that did that to me. And what I really found out about that, you know, besides feeling bad about it, obviously, at the time, I also had to think about, like, why were they saying those things? What part of their own projection of their own fears were they imposing on me? And we do that, don't we? Like, you know, and normally as humans, when someone says something and it triggers something in us, we sort of go, oh, my God, don't do that. My friend Mary started a business and she totally, like, you know, like, like got into huge debt that lost like, like, because they care for you. So they want to say, don't do that. Here's a warning thing, you know, and, and anyway, you know, everyone feels this way. So you should just continue and find joy elsewhere or whatever. Right. At the end of the day, that's just their projection of their own insecurities, their own fears, because maybe deep down inside, they do want to do something different, but don't think they can. So when you are doing something different, they feel the need to justify their own position because that makes them feel better about staying where they are. You know, it's like a weird psychology thing, you know? So we can't take it personally because whatever someone says to me is a projection of their own beliefs. What I find is that if I wanted to not be feeling bad about what I did and, and make the decision on, I have to be very conscious about who I choose to tell, who I choose to uh, involve in my life now that it's going this direction and actually let the right people who are capable of supporting me support me, not tap into other people that could be great friends in other ways, but we don't have to talk about this change because you know that at that moment it's very you're very sensitive to like if you've made the decision so that key of importance of choosing the right people to talk to choosing the right support systems I think are so um yeah very very important to us persevering towards the decision that we've made um somebody had told me uh a while back at that time I had just I was just beginning to make the decision myself to switch careers and somebody had told me to to treat it like a like a sapling, like a new, like a new bud. Like be careful who you share it with, because somebody could, you know, if 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 you're still very unsure and secure, you still have a lot of questions in your head, and you share it with someone who's like pouring cold water over it, then you might just, you know, right. say forget it. You know, at that moment, you need to put as much support of people that are like minded and support you, and still challenge you. You know, not just to say you're awesome and the end, but. You know, I think it's so important to have the right people that, that understand your goals, you know, understand it on a deeper level than just responsibility, you know, or 
traditional trajectory of success. You need to be with other people or talk with other people who have either done it before and can show you the right way to do it and, and give you the truth or people who are also working towards the same dream because they've decided internally and no one can take that away from you. You know, once you've decided what is your meaning of life, like, you know, that's something you have to hold on to. And, and again, reconnect with people that also have that same, you know, similar definition. So you don't feel like a black sheep. You don't feel like a little bit of a weirdo, you know, in society, because you can feel quite isolated, I think, when you make this choice that is really un- un- unconventional. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the listeners to the Second Breaks podcast are people who are, you know, who have corporate careers. Um, and so let's say someone's listening and thinking, you know, I have an idea for a business, right? But I'm currently employed. I've never uh, started a business before. My family are not into, they're not into business either. And so where should I start? Mm. Well, first, I think we need to start with uh, knowing more about the skill sets and talents we come with. I think what a lot of people make a mistake doing, I myself included, when I first was thinking, what should I start, is looking externally, right? Going and seeing what other people are starting, what my friends started that was super successful, skulking around in Facebook groups and sort of like getting all like, you know, like, like business pornography, you know, like into other people's businesses. And then when it comes for you to perform, you are sort of like, oh, I don't know what to do. You know, I mean, it's really great to be inspired, I think, by other people. But at some point, I think we have to parent ourselves and create those boundaries because we can no longer tap into our own internal inspiration if we're so um, exposed to other people's, you know, there's like that comparison game that sort of happens is very thin line between inspiration and comparison, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think once we start co- to compare, we have to sort of cut ourselves off a little bit and go, okay, I've absorbed enough information. I have listened to enough podcasts and videos. It is time for me to take what I've learned into what do I need to do? Right. Uh, and that's where the real work really starts to be honest, is that acknowledgement and recognition of what are these skill sets I come with and what are these combination potentially of skill set that can create something new for me. So that, that sort of inventory check to begin with, right. Of te- like, you know, practical skill sets, like what do I know how to do that is valuable to other people that I can do today? Business doesn't have to be a forever, like what you start today, I think this was the big big myth I had to debunk for myself is that I took forever to figure out a business idea, not because I didn't know what I wanted to do, but because I felt that it was had to be the business idea I died with. It was like, if I chose wrong, I am screwed. Like, you know, so this immense pressure that happens to every one of us, like, it's like a marriage, you know, you're like, I have to choose the right one, or I'm gonna, you know, not like regret the rest of my life. So then they become sort of into this whole analysis paralysis moment of like not trusting their gut or instincts about something they can start. So I usually say, and this is sort of what I teach a lot in, um, you know, the flagship program, what we have at Screw the Cubicle called the Academy of Cubicle Crashers. A big part of what we do is actually figure out what people should start, you know, figure out what are these blends of talents and experience and skill sets that become a business idea that is meant for you, right? Not like you're designed to do it rather than oh, it's someone else doing it and I'll conform to that role. Because then you're just doing what you did in corporate, right? There's no point of that. Right. You're, di- you're almost creating yourself a new job in a way, but you have to know about yourself enough to sort of know what are the characteristics of this job that feels really valuable for me to create. Um, and so what I usually say to my own students as well when I mentor them is, what is the right for right now idea? Say that again. What is the right for right now? What is the right for right now idea? Not right for when I'm on my deathbed idea, right for right now. Like right now, all my experience and skill sets and instincts and gut is telling me these are the sorts of people I want to help. These are the sorts of things that I can do and feel confident with. Yes, there's some gaps of knowledge that I have to improve on and upskill, but this is where I feel like I want to converse most in, right? So in business, I, you know, I think business itself is already a tough gig for a lot of people to learn, right? So if you add on a type of business idea that isn't particularly meaningful, it's just a means to an end or it's just only for financial gain, I tell you, when you hit multiple walls that will happen in your first year of business, because it's sort of like this for a while, um, you're not going to find an internal motivation, an intrinsic motivation to continue because everything's going to feel really difficult, you know, at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. So, so to be able to bypass the difficulty and have motivation to keep learning about your business, you kind of need to care about the thing that you're putting out there or the, the reason you're putting it out there or the purpose that you're putting out there. And I think a lot of us, especially if we are leaving corporate because we want to feel more purposeful and meaningful, need to take this into account because 
we don't, I, I'm built like that too. I can't work hard if I don't care about what I'm doing. It can't be just any business. It's got to be a particular mission or a particular purpose or a particular individual that I feel called to help, right? And that then get, puts a fire under my ass to be creative and actually read books and do all these things to up-level my own knowledge to be able to share that with other people. There's a reason to do that, you know? So um, that that's sort of where I think people should initially start Understand your inventory of skills. Know what you can help with. What problems? Think about business ideas as problems. What problems can I solve? Not what's a great brand or what looks beautiful or what people are buying. Like what problems can I solve, right? That I know how to solve either based on my professional experience of doing it in corporate and being paid to do it. Or it could be potentially sometimes, and this happens a lot with my clients, is it's a business idea that has been birthed from a personal experience that they have gone through. So they've never been paid to do it. They've never been paid to do it, but they have gone through many years of a personal experience that allows them to be empathetic and also very credible in knowing what it feels like to go through that journey, right? And so whether or not you've been paid to do it or not doesn't matter. What it should also, what it should mean is that it's something that you know a lot about. It's something that you have curiosity about. It's something that you have innate interest you know, crazy curiosity to explore that will take you more than just making money, you know, and that's, I think, what's going to lead you to the financial gain, right? So that's sort of the first step. And the second last thing I want to say about that, because there's so many things I have to say about the stage, but I think the second most important thing that I really learned, and I think this is what we teach a lot as well uh, at, at the academy, is that we always believe in experiments. Because Here's the thing. You could have a couple of ideas and you're like, I'm not really sure because I've never done this thing before. I've sort of done this, but in a different context. How do I know for sure I want to put all my eggs in this basket and invest my time, money and energy to launch this thing? Right. Because it takes a, a bit of effort. Um, is that instead of launching right away and sort of trying to be beautiful and trying to be looking good at your business, focus on being good instead. Right. Less focus on looking good, more focus on being good. And what that means is that in order for you to know if this business can be valuable to other people, if you can charge for it, if you like what you do, that's also a big question we don't ask. Like, yeah. will I like this? Actually, it sounds great, but do, will I even like it? You're not going to know until you're going to be in the vicinity of that work. So that means you actually have to do the work. And this might require you actually not to focus on the shiny objects like websites and branding and looking good, but actually focus on like, who can I help like two or three people I can take on just like what I did with the eight guinea pigs mm -hmm. uh, to verify and validate my business, uh, my coaching uh, business is that you need to be working with people and actually use that beta test phase as a way of experimenting with whether or not you like it, but also where things can refine and improve based on real feedback from real humans. We skip this step all the time. And that's why we feel so not courageous to launch our business and ask to be paid because we've never done the thing that, that, that tells us we should be paid for that. So there's no shame in this stage. It's actually a stage that I still continue to explore. So every time I launch a program, every time I launch a retreat for the first time, I'm like, I've never done this before. I mean, I've done it to some context, but not this format. I will always run a test version of that in some way, right? And get and, and interview people and actually go through a process of that, of that framework with people before I decide to charge for it, right? And I think that is something that you'll bring onto your business building activities going forward, but also important in this beginning stage of business building to be really validated that you have chosen the right path, that you are now willing to invest in your time and effort to build this thing, you know? So uh, that beta test process, I think is super important for people to consider in this stage too. So Lydia, you mentioned the academy. Yes. The academy of- Cubicle crashers. Cubo Crashers. Talk to us a little bit about that. What is that program like? Uh, how can we participate? Yeah, well, if you go to screwthecubicle.com, which is where my website is, um, there's a big yellow button on the top there to get to the academy. So we open doors to the academy uh, a few times a year. So we're actually, depending on when you listen to this podcast, uh, we have an enrollment period happening right now. So basically what it is, is that it is it's actually a program designed by feedback from my community of people. So I last year in 2017, I went on a mission to interview like 20 people in my community that were the most perfect ideal uh, people that were ready to take that leap. Um, I also did a lot of research around what was the uh, motivation and accountability that people needed to continue to persevere. Because what I was seeing was that people starting businesses or starting that exciting stage of like, I wanna quit and I'm ready to do this. And then there's a moment where they check out really quickly once the going gets tough, they sort of like, okay, oh, that's not for me. That wasn't meant to be. And they go away. 
right? And then they and then they keep coming back into it and sort of regretting the decisions that they made. So I was like, why do people? What causes people to continue to persevere, continue to have a long term approach to changing their lives rather than short term focus and vision? Um, and one of the big things that came out of that research was community, not being alone in doing this thing and actually be able to tap into a collective intelligence of people with different skill sets to, to, to actually do more with themselves, you know, to share actually their own skill sets and be, and be confident in offering that to other people. And that's a, a way to learn. So the community program was really built from that, right? A, a collective intelligence of a small group of people working to, together towards the, right, the same goals with mentorship and obviously support, but also contribution. Right. So the people that join the academy have to actually commit to contributing to the group rather than just take information, absorb information. What I really find is that people no longer need more information. They have Google for that. People need help to execute. That's where the going gets tough. Right. That's where shit gets real. Right. When you have to work and execute. So this is actually the main thing that supports our community is execution. Every month we are executing in bite sized levels for everybody to make sure that everyone's moving forward. Uh, so the academy is a 12 month program. A lot of people ask why 12 months? Why not three months, four months? Because from the average of transition change that I've experienced in the last five years working with like hundreds of uh, corporate professionals is that it usually takes about this amount of time to actually transition. And also people work full time. So you're not able to invest full time hours into designing your business. You reach many epiphanies of change, you know, through that journey, which requires that long term support. And so that 12 month is a commitment. But however, it is also these incremental efforts that we are working on together to allow you to create results. Right. It's sort mm-hmm. of compounded effort within that 12 months and also a safe place for people to talk about um, the human side of things. Right. What's going on in their self-doubt process? What's going on in their like, you know, relationships with their spouses and, and families when maybe they don't have that support system? How do we converse with those people? So it's really a combination of the human side of change when it comes to transition, but it's also the business side where we help people discover what their side hustle should be. We discover how to build their business together, create a framework for their work, how to get better at that work and find their first clients uh, and gain feedback. Really, before you put anything out, we have this safe place for us to collaborate together and talk together. So every month there's a learning lab that I teach, which is very uh, consistent to that journey of a corporate transitioner. Uh, we have mentors that come in every month that I, uh, you know, share their expertise in. Uh, there's co-working weeks that we work on something together. So there's accountability to get together virtually and work on things in sprints, you know, and get things done for the month. Uh, and we also have um, lots of mastermind sessions. So we have an ex- uh, sort of a mentorship call with me every month as well so that people get their questions answer and they get a coach, right, in, in conjunction with the community. So this has been sort of everything I've been doing has been leading to the Academy. And I'm so proud that, you know, it's finally uh, on and open for 2018. So did you say that you're open for uh, enrollment right now? So when does it start? First starting date will be February 19th. And we close the doors to the Academy on February the 16th. So you don't just only say, yeah, I want to go and you come in. I am very quite conscious about who comes into the community because I feel like the, the more I can curate the group and it's not just a bunch of random people, the more this group will actually be quite self-sufficient and powerful together, right? Uh, I'm not the only resource of information. There's all these brilliant people that can actually help you too. Uh, so I interview and, I, I, and everyone has to apply before they come in. So you fill out an application Tell me more about why you want to um, come into the academy, what you can contribute to this community, and what are your goals, right? So um, we start every intake with a kickoff session, and kickoff session is a goal planning session with me for about two hours where we map out their goals for 12 months so that we know when they start the academy, there's very concrete goals to meet and concrete benchmarks or milestones to keep them uh, motivated. Um, and, and so once we do a call, uh, whoever applies with, with me, then there's an invitation that is sent uh, if it's a sort of a good fit. Uh, And then you would be invited to the Academy. So it is a highly curated group for sure. All right. So a couple more questions, Lydia. Uh, One is, uh, what's one book, fiction or nonfiction, that uh, has made an impact that you could recommend? Yeah, I mean, this book keeps coming up a lot for me. And every time I reread it again, I'm like, oh, what nuggets of wisdom. Uh, And that book would be The Prosperous Coach. I love The Prosperous Coach, and I don't actually think you need to have to be a coach in order to read the book, okay? I think if you are in any way involved in the kind of work or interested to be involved in the kind of work that is helpful to people, like you are in the business of helping rather than I'm a coach, I'm a therapist, like whatever you call yourself, you are helping, your way of working is to help people do something, and there's a personal connection to that, you have to read this book. 
Um, what I loved about the book was it taught me like sort of the simple but most effective and humanized way to build a business that that connects with people, right? Not being swayed by shiny things like getting the best master funnel created or master Facebook ads. It's really about bringing us back to like the human necessities and human connections of what we do in order to um, gain more followers or gain more an, of an audience to our work and how to build more intimacy with the relationships we want to build. And I think this resonates with me really truly because I'm quite an intimate person. I rather talk to a small room or have a handful of clients rather than like this huge, you know, arena of audiences. I'm just a, that kind of person. See, So I think anyone that wants to build better relationships, want to be built more authentic connections with people rather than use trickery marketing. And it's something very doable. You know, you don't have to learn a new skill to do this. Like it's really just tapping into how you build relationships with people. Um, I think this book is going to be awesome for you. And then finally, Lydia, uh, where can people find you online? I guess Screw the Cubicle is the main home. It right? is. Yeah. So if you go to screwthecubicle.com, hopefully that's a memorable enough name for you to remember. Uh, over there, you can find sort of all my resources. So for people who uh, would like to um, look at what I do and sort of get some prep of what they need to um, prepare, for example. So a lot of people sort of go, what's the next step should I take? You know, I'm not sure what is that next step because people get overwhelmed with steps. Uh, I have a free quiz uh, right on the banner of my, of my website, which is just a free quiz that allows you to um, understand where you're at with the stage of, of change and corporate transition and actually um, let you know uh, as, as a result of like what your opportunities are what your challenges may be and what your next actionable steps are, depending on how you answer that quiz. So that will br bring a bit more clarity of having some boundaries about not being distracted by certain things and actually focus on what actually matters to what you need to be um, a lot more clear on at the stage you're in. Uh, and of course, to find out about the Academy, that's also there on the website, right on the top right, there's a yellow button. Uh, and depending on when you watch the video, we might be open for enrollment or you can actually get on the wait list to find out more. Uh, but I have tons of videos there. I mean, I uh, every link to my YouTube channel, to uh, the free trainings that I do, all of that's in my on my website. And I do uh, free trainings every month, right? So we do a lot of stuff um, uh, in a live stream and also on a webinar. So anyone that registers really will get lots of freebies every single month as well to help you sort of transition and start start inspiring you to start thinking about um, what to prepare. Well, Lydia, this has been great. I love this conversation. Like I said, I wish I could, like, I want to talk to you some more. Maybe this is a good thing for me to uh, keep in mind. I'll invite you again. So. Yeah, I would love to. I love this conversation too. Thanks, Lou. That's it for today's episode of the Second Rakes Podcast. My friend, you can find the show notes plus links to all the relevant resources at secondbreaks.com forward slash episode 36. And don't forget to sign up for the Pivot Essentials while you're there. The Pivot Essentials is your guide to making your career move in today's fast-changing world. Uh, again, that's secondbreaks.com forward slash episode 36. You can download past episodes of this podcast and subscribe in Apple Podcasts or Google Play. And if you enjoyed what you heard today, I appreciate your review and recommendation because it helps me reach career professionals looking to make a move and who can benefit from this show. You can go to uh, iTunes or you can simply go to secondbreaks.com forward slash review. And that link will take you directly to iTunes where you can leave your feedback. Thank you so much. I will be back next week with a new guest to inspire you, get your ideas flowing, and to motivate you to start planning or at least to start seriously thinking about your own career move. Till then, keep on making your debt, my friend. Cool beans! This is the Second Breaks Podcast. 